the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already added more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and review all 1,756 movies on Disney Plus. 56, that is 20... <laughs> 30. It is 30 movies more than last time. They have added 30 movies. Weren't, weren't we at like 1701 when we did the black hole? Yeah. That's 55 movies, man. And we've done four? Five. Yeah, I know. You got to speed it up, man. <laughs> you got to stop camping so much. I'm sorry. Stop enjoying your life so much with your wife. <laughs> I watched this movie like two hours ago on the drive home on an iPad, okay? I'm here. We're, we're talking about it. All right. But getting to the movie that we are doing today... Freaky Fridays, 1976 Freaky Friday. All right, so just a little background. This is another Ron Miller joint. This is another son-in-law of Walt Disney himself, Ron Miller, the producer of The Black Hole. For this movie, he adapted a book that was written by Mary Rogers. Here's something I didn't know until I looked into it. Mary Rogers uh, is the daughter of Richard Rogers. One half of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Cool. And Mary Rogers also got her start as a composer, and she actually wrote the music for the musical Once Upon a Mattress, which uh, has actually also been adapted by Disney, I think, for an ABC made-for-TV special. In the 70s, she transitioned to writing children's books. She wrote a book, Freaky Friday, published in 1972, about a daughter who switches uh, bodies with her mother for one day, and they both learn lessons about what it's like to live in the other person's shoes. This movie was adapted by the author, and you can tell because this movie is entirely internal monologue. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. You hear a lot. A lot of authors don't end up adapting their own books uh, to films when they're options. Studios are reluctant to do that. Sometimes even non-authors trying to adapt a book run into trouble. If you remember the old 80s version of Dune, that's all an internal monologue because the adaptation was basically struggling trying to find ways to convert pages and pages of characters' thoughts into something happening on screen. And so it was basically just copy and pasting what was on the page of the book into what was in the movie. And instead, what you get is internal monologue. Uh, okay. And that is all over the Yeah, movie. it is. However, it is kind of a, a device to identify... You see the mom character, but you hear Jodie Foster's voice, right? Yeah. You're seeing and hearing two different perspectives, right? Right. So I kind of liked it. It was very heavy-handed. It was used, as you said, way too much. But I kind of did like it as a device to hear, like, Jodie Foster's voice while you're seeing what the mom is doing. It kind of ties you back into the premise a bit. It kind of, you're right, is necessary, but it is only necessary because neither of these actors are actually doing an impression of the character no, that they're supposed to be. Not at all. And so you need that internal monologue by the original actor in order to remind yourself, oh, yeah, that's supposed to be Jodie Foster right now, not 
a drunk five-year-old. <laughs> I, th- I think too. I just I didn't even like kind of think about it in that regard. But it is just you know teenage Jodie Foster awkwardly sitting there thinking this monologue for like five minutes while the rest of the camera crew just stares at this like 16 year old being silent <laughs> which must have been very awkward to film the actors don't seem like they're playing a 13 year old in a 40 year old's body or a you know an adult woman in a 13 year old body they act like they're playing aliens who have taken over someone's body and the internal monologue is jodie foster trapped in a body being controlled by an alien <laughs> that is the impression that i get from this movie that was your takeaway you were watching that that is what the movie feels like to me it's jodie foster being trapped in a body that is being controlled by so, an alien so this, this, this is this is walt disney's adaptation of invasion of the body snatchers i was gonna say yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so bobby uh please tell me what happens in this movie because i've seen this movie twice and i cannot remember for the life of me, it feels like someone describing the most boring day they've ever had, and I like I just keep falling asleep. I cannot get through the conversation. Uh, so this movie starts with, if I remember correctly, the titles are was it John Jensen and Art Stevens with the title credits, and you get this song that's actually sang by Jodie Foster and Barbara Harris, singing this basically what's going to happen in the movie with this kind of fun set of title cards that are animated. Um, yeah, it's very bewitched. It's very it uh, bewitched. Yeah. It it did it kind of like sent off my Canadian alarm bells and reminded me of Mr. Dress Up a little bit. Um, oh, with like them the... driving around on little cardboard train yeah, yeah. and whatnot. And um, the song actually sounded uh, a little Carpenters to me. It's not a bad song. It's a kind of a nice little pleasant yeah. song. I'd like to be you for a day. And it's basically this odd vision into the 1950s of I just I guess like something that may have a trouble with this is half the time you can't tell who this movie's for. You can't tell if this movie is for 13-year-olds who are Jodie Foster being like, my parents don't understand me, or if they're for the adults who sit at home chain-smoking, drinking hard liquor, being like stupid kids at their stupid school. Because the movie kind of like jumps tonally. It's clearly meant for both. Yeah. The the, the movie was made for Ron Miller. <laughs> um, it is a fucking elevator pitch. This is, you get in the elevator, you say, I got an idea for a movie. Mother and daughter don't get along. Friday the 13th, they switch bodies for a day. Boom. Greenlit. Yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. Uh, the movie itself, watching it, you're like, oh, nobody would like this. This is garbage. Wait, okay. But like, so you, the you Bobby, elevator conversation is brilliant. Bobby, you just said that this was a glimpse into the 50s, but this was shot in 1978. I meant, I meant to say the 1970s. Sorry. I was okay, thinking, I was I was like, like, no, 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 you did not. You meant to say the 50s because this movie is a glimpse into the 50s. They are living madmen. You know what? It's funny. That was a Freudian slip and it ended up being the absolute truth because it is like everyone has kind of frigid roles as to like what they can and cannot do and you know i even make notes of the way i mean um john austin plays the father and i love john austin and anything he shows up in like i loved the adams family as a kid i loved the adams family cartoon that came out in the 90s after the remake of that film and didn't even realize as a kid that they brought john austin back to voice gomez in the cartoon adaptation he's a lot of fun in return of the killer tomatoes he came back for the attack of the killer tomatoes cartoon show voicing the same character so I I just I like seeing him in anything he's in and he was really fun in this movie. But he has this line kind of right off the bat to his wife when he changes all of his plans. He looks at her and says, "Look, baby, just show up and be beautiful and I'll take care of all the rest." Oh yeah. No. Yeah. I wrote I uh made a note of that line. All right. So as Bobby said, just to go a summary on the cast, we have Jodie Foster playing Annabelle Andrews, uh the 13-year-old daughter. We have Barbara Harris playing her mother, Ellen Andrews. 
Uh, John Austin is playing Bill Andrews. Uh, like Bobby said, John Austin, fantastic from the Adams family. Adoptive father of Sean Austin. Great in the movies, mm-hmm. great at home. Apparently, he was a wonderful adoptive dad. Uh, we got Mark McClure as Boris Harris, the neighbor. Uh, Mark McClure, famous for playing Jimmy Olsen in the Superman mm-hmm. movies. Uh, he was also Dave McFly, the older was, brother yeah, in Back to I the said Future. Back to the Future brother. I got that written down. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be like one of his first roles. Mr. Disappearing Hand himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we got Perry Kelly as Mrs. Uh, Schmouse <laughs> and Sparky Marcus as Ben Andrews, a.k.a. Can we? Face. Can we just take a quick moment to just acknowledge Sparky Marcus? <laughs> <laughs> the name or the just actor? Just the name. That's it. Just let that soak in for a minute. That's all you want to talk about? I'm done talking. That's all I needed to say. Um, I like the way that Jody Foster introduced him. He's a perfect person and a creep. I, uh, I thought that was a very fun... A description for her right off the bat. I find, you know, going off of what Bobby said, who is this movie for? Because the movie really does not take any steps to endear you to these characters. Uh, it introduces you to Jodie Foster, and immediately she's like, I hate my brother because he's too perfect. Her mother is a chain-smoking... I, like, I, I have so many notes about smoking in this movie. Like, I have five pages of notes. Half of them, like three and a half, are just about how much they smoke in this movie. And the cigarettes are huge. She doesn't even use filters. No, they're huge cigarettes, too. Yeah, she just constantly is going cigarette by cigarette. Like Bobby alluded to with his Freudian slip there, um, <laughs> everything in this movie basically comes straight out of Mad Men. And it feels like this is a window into 1956, but how, somehow it was shot in 1976. And if it wasn't for the fact that it was written by a woman, I would have to say entirely fundamentally, the film is misogynistic and predicated on institutional sexism. I think that's the premise is that like the dad or the husband is just a giant asshole, but is portrayed to society as a nice guy. And as the movie progresses, both the mom and the daughter uh, figure out how much of a jerk this guy really is, right? That is one of the subtexts, and I and I completely agree that there are some lines of dialogue to that effect, and there are some jokes kind of poking fun at institutional sexism that these women are experiencing, um, and they refer to the father as a male chauvinist pig on multiple occasions. But I just mean fundamentally, the structure of this film is about two women who have extremely boring lives accomplish nothing, are good at nothing. I gotta stop you there. Jodie Foster has, like, the most busy schedule in high school I've ever seen. She's like, she's captain of the field hockey team. She's the the captain of the field hockey team. She's the captain of her um, water ski team. That's a thing, apparently. And have you seen what the mom has to deal with on a daily basis? At one point in time, seven people show up to her house. That touches on what Sean was talking about, is that it's not, it's that... You don't know how hard it is to manage a household and pay the right cleaner and make sure the drapes get done and keep an eye on the alcoholic cleaner who does our laundry. Like, it's these are the struggles she has to deal with. But Sean's saying that these these two people are not good at anything. Are you mistaken? Do you forget that that they switched bodies? Like, had Jodie Foster been in her own body, she probably would have won that field hockey game. You're right. I was saying that wrong. What I meant to say is within the course of the film. As they're in each other's bodies. Oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah, they're, they they completely fail at every that's, single task. That's yes. the point of the film because, I mean, now we're jumping right to the end. The podcast is over. But they learn to appreciate what each other's going through. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. So we've skipped ahead through the entire movie. The movie's over. But let's go back to the beginning. And we're going to talk about how this movie starts. We open up with a little bit of a voiceover. Change of pace. We're going to get some voiceover. Uh, Jodie Foster introduces us to herself. She gives us a very brief montage. We very quickly learn her entire backstory. And here's something that I like about this film. So it takes us about 30 seconds to understand who Jodie Foster is. Movie opens up. She's like, I'm Jodie Foster. I'm 13 years old. I'm a little girl. I play field hockey. I do these things. 30 seconds in and out. Done. You know everything about me. Then we go and we see the mother doing her day-to-day stuff. We are introduced to John Austin as the father. He's doing PR things for a marina. He is uh, opening a brand new marina. And uh, he's preparing for a very big presentation that he has that day. The mother and the daughter get into an argument. And here's right off the bat one of the interesting things that jumped out at me. And again, it kind of goes to this whole institutional sexism that is baked into this movie that I just, I question. It confuses me. Because right at the beginning, Jodie Foster describes herself as watching her figure. She's She doesn't know what she weighs, but she's watching it. And then... She goes to the uh, kitchen and she gets into an argument with her mother because her mother wants to feed her eggs and bacon. She says, I don't go for that eggs and bacon stuff. You're going to make me into a blimp. Basically, the first thing she says to her. She leaves the house. She immediately goes to the <laughs> ice cream parlor and eats a banana sundae. That's her breakfast. A rum a rum raisin banana split. A rum split. raisin banana split sundae. That she eats, she eats every day. It's her usual. She eats every That's day. her regular every day. They go to this restaurant, this diner. Like, who in high school goes for breakfast? At a malt shop. Ahead of school. At a malt shop. What teenager has the money to go for ice yeah. cream every morning before school? Imagining this is 1956, <laughs> this rum raisin banana split costs a nickel. Yeah, you because know. that's all she put on the counter. Did you see that? Yeah. She put a, she put a, a nickel on the counter. I didn't understand the world that they were living in at this point They were in living time. in 1956. But this is just what it gets to. I don't understand these characters. Why was she fighting with her mom about eating eggs and bacon because it's too unhealthy and then she goes to eat ice cream? Are we supposed to believe that she didn't really believe it was too unhealthy? Or, like, what is the character motivation here? It was... I, I couldn't follow any of it. Uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything to be understand like i don't think they had anything i think the character was just like i, I don't want to eat whatever you're giving me i'm gonna go do what i normally do all right right and then uh and they actually have a bit later on because the mom says no wonder she never eats it's because at school dudes are bringing her tuna fish and uh peanut butter sandwiches for lunch that's her favorite sandwich apparently so like she clearly has no idea how to eat. Maybe it's a commentary on 1958's uh, uh, food pyramid that uh, no one knows what they're doing. Yeah, you, well, you have to eat all four food groups. Uh, tuna, <laughs> yeah. peanut, peanut butter, butter, rum and raisin, <laughs> rum, <laughs> raisin, banana splits, <laughs> yeah. and cigarettes. It is 1958. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then, then you become an adult and it's just smoking and hard liquor for the rest of your life. Because that, I, I say every note I have, there's so much smoking and a lot of really hard drinking. And we'll get to the cleaner who shows up, but they I openly call her a rummy in this movie. Oh, she is extremely alcoholic. She is seen, like, leaving the liquor store with a brown paper bag that is, like, well emptied by the time she's left the store and paid for it. I didn't know how to feel about any character in this movie. I was, like, so one way or the other. Like, I had no idea what was happening with any character. I felt like... You, you, yeah, it was so frustrating. Well, the only character I particularly liked was John Austin, who is the male chauvinist pig. 
And <laughs> it's a very confused script. It doesn't really feel like it's rooted in any kind of traditional character arcs. Like, we'll get into this a bit more, but right at the beginning, the last character to be introduced is Boris the Neighbor. Uh, we do get a fun scene where Jodie Foster, through internal monologue, uh, tells the audience about Boris, describes him as the most beautiful person in the world, pushes her face up against the window to watch him, and he's this lanky, awkward boy across the street with an inhaler. Which then gets undone so very, very quickly when <laughs> the mom is the one trying to sleep with him as they drink in the kitchen. But we'll get to that. <laughs> so at this point, Jodie Foster is eating her breakfast banana split, and her mother is at home. And there is a, a little bit of a moment here where Barbara, the mother, is talking to John Austin before he leaves for work. He is going to go give this presentation on this new marina. It's a very big deal. The investors are coming to watch it. And she's talking to him about the name of the marina. So ah. he's going to be calling it the Oceana Marina. And she says, I always wanted it to be called the Isle of Whispering Winds. <laughs> and he's like, that's dumb. Now, I don't know if the joke is supposed to be that he's, I think it's supposed to be that he's a chauvinist and he's ignoring her advice. But the problem is, is that is a dumb name. That like, is a I, dumb name. It's a I terrible it name. <laughs> so again, I don't know where this movie is supposed to be going. Are we supposed to be laughing at the mother with her bad name? Are we supposed to be feeling sorry for her because her husband isn't listening to her bad suggestions? Whatever it is. You're not supposed to feel any way for any character. It's a documentary. It feels like it's just a window into these people's lives. Even though their lives are kind of boring. <laughs> I, I was going to say, so Jodie Foster at the beginning, she gets her, as you said, the 30-second monologue, here I am, this is my story, you get to know me. The mom doesn't really get that. No. Does she? No. She gets that, she gets a little bit of it between her, like, you know, talking, telling Jodie Foster to clean up her room and, like, all the chores that they has to, and then talking to her husband and seeing how much of an asshole he is, but... Like, she doesn't get an opening internal monologue. No, which is unfortunate. Which you would think they would try to set up. They'd be like, here's the one for Jodie Foster, here's the one for the mom, let's have the same structure so when we switch, you know, it makes sense and we start doing all the internal monologues throughout. But they don't do that. Well, I think they're obviously leaning into the children's perspective because it is a family children film, and I get that, but I do think it does harm the mother character because she comes across, she's not particularly, uh almost empathetic it's it's a very confused character and i feel like if we got a better sense of her internal yeah. life her goals her thoughts what she actually believes about her child from her like internal perspective i think that would really help it out unfortunately we don't because we are on a roller coaster ride uh 11 minutes into this movie and bam they switch places yeah yeah um and when I say 11 minutes into this movie, I am including the three and a half minute <laughs> opening credits. <laughs> wow. So it is actually seven and a half minutes into this movie that they switch places. That's entirely enough time to get to know both characters yeah. and before the body switch. Yeah, this movie does not waste any time at all. It switches places because they say the same thing at the exact same time. I wish I could switch places with her for just one day. Those are the words that they say. And they say them at the exact same time. And because of that, by the magical rules of this universe, they switch bodies. So she inhabits the body of her mother and her mother inhabits her body. It's still a better premise than pissing into a fountain at the same time. What is that? What What are you describing there? Does, is this from personal experience? Are you no. describing something that <laughs> personally the, happened to the, you? 
the change up, I think, with um Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman. Right. They uh, they pee into a fountain at the same time, and then they wake up the next morning in each other's bodies. This one, at least say, it's Friday the 13th, it's spooky, and then they have to say this at the exact same time. Okay. Honestly, I love the fact that they basically operate under Groundhog Day rules, where <laughs> yeah. they do not explain the magic yeah. at all. Yeah. They're just like, fuck you, this is what happened, <laughs> do you want to watch the movie or not? <laughs> And if you have questions, they're like, no, shut up. That's not this kind of movie. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot more than the alternatives, which uh, we may or may not see when we discuss the remake. <laughs> um, but the fact that there's no explanation, it's just this basically magical Coke jinx that causes them to switch bodies. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Jodie Foster, when she suddenly inhabits the body of her mother, uh, played by Barbara Harris, uh, is a little confused. She gets a little weirded out. She, like, drops her plate. However, her mother, now inhabiting the body of Jodie Foster, yeah. looks in the mirror and goes, oh, no. <laughs> it's my brain in my daughter's body, in Annabelle's body. And she is so not shocked by this that I have to believe that this has happened to her before. <laughs> that if, in this universe, anytime anyone says the exact same thing, as someone else they know, they switch bodies. It is the only explanation for how they react to this. She's just like, oh, I guess I'm in Annabelle's body now. I think we have to now talk about the acting then of the two yep. characters as the two different, because this is the, the moment, right? I mm -hmm. What I remember of being told about the movie back in the day, right, was that Jodie Foster was like really good in this movie. It was kind of like one of a breakout role-ish for her, so to speak, right? She, she, she considers it her breakout role from being a child star to being an actor. The mom, Barbara Harris, so much better than Jodie Foster in this movie. I'm going to back you up on that. She was so good in this movie. I dug the shit out of the mom in this film. Uh, she crushed like every scene she was in. I, I, I have thoughts, but I know what you're referring to. I, I don't think either performance really works that well, but we can get into it and oh, we might disagree as a little you bit. Said, they're not they're not doing impressions of each other. But I am loving how much fun Barbara Harris is having oh, in she this is role. Definitely having fun. And we That's will talk what about it. Is. it. But the issue here is that Jodie Foster, in the opening seven and a half minutes of the movie, is acting like a forty five year old woman. <laughs> and after she changes bodies, she's acting like a 45-year-old woman. Yeah. There is zero change in her performance. She certainly acts very mature for her age, and you yeah. can believe that she's an, you know, an adult woman in a child's body, but when you had this introduction to her of seven and a half minutes, the <laughs> fact that she doesn't do anything to distinguish herself from the rest of the performance that she's going to give is, I think, a missed opportunity. It's also not just Jodie Foster's fault because she's given strange dialogue for a 13-year-old girl. Like when she's talking to her friend, her friend talks like a child. Her friend is like, Annabelle, something's weird with you today. But Annabelle is saying things like, oh, I had this conversation with my mother and I was having this argument and I always <laughs> give her that eye. And when I give her that eye, she gets really intimidated by the things that I say. And it's like, this is not a 13-year-old girl. <laughs> like, why are you writing it like this? Why is she performing it like this? And then the magic happens and there's zero change to her. Then we talk about Barbara Harris. The magic happens to her and there is a 100% change to her. Yeah. Uh, she is... Very definitely giving a performance. She is very definitely doing a role and a character that is different from her adult Ellen Andrews role. Um, I'm not sure 
it is anything close to not only being an impression of Jodie Foster, but I don't think it's anything close to being an impression of a 13-year-old girl. Uh, I kind of got the impression that she believes that uh, Jodie Foster was a seven-year-old child who was drunk, who was always drunk on rum. That is the best I can describe this performance. I don't know. what. Tell me what you thought about Barbara Harris when she transforms into a child. I, when she transforms into a child? I thought it was awesome. I mean, the first scenes are pretty creepy because she's like looking at her dad really creepily. Well, and there, there's a line in the movie where she slips up and calls him daddy. Yep. And John Austin completely turns into this like lecherous Lecherous, creep, man. And just looks at the door and says, you never called me that before. Yeah. I, I have to creepy. say, I... I laughed at that. It is creepy, but <laughs> it is comically creepy. And yeah. also, I just – I feel like John Austin is one of the only people who can deliver that well just because, I mean, his Gomez character is predicated on someone who, as soon as you speak French, will immediately turn into the horniest man alive. And so I just I just found it amusing that this John Austin character – if you call him daddy, he's just like, oh, that gets his engine going. I mean, that was that was kind of my overall note. I mean, we'll get into this more. But, like, I thought that, you know, the perviest Disney movie I'd ever seen was Blackbeard's Ghost. No, trumped by Freaky Friday at, like, every turn when I least expected. <laughs> yeah, the first shot we see of her, because uh, Jodie Foster calls the house and is like, Bill, go check on Ellen. Right, but but then the first shot we see of the mom is she's listening to this portable radio blowing bubblegum dancing in her closet, right? Yeah. And I'm like, that doesn't seem like a thing Jodie Foster would have done. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. We are introduced to this character that the movie tells us is a tomboy who likes yes. playing sports. Yeah. Who does not really follow the stereotypes of a teenage girl at the time, which is interesting and exciting but then as soon as they switch bodies she becomes like a different person apparently she's chewing bubblegum she's dancing to a portable rock mu uh, music in front of a mirror it's very strange it has nothing to yeah. do with her so but she also says that like later in the film she says that um she calls her mom like hot like she says like my mom is beautiful so maybe like um, Boris, the neighbor, will like me if I can get my mom to talk me up, right? Yeah. So maybe it's, like, some sort of thing that, like, it's a, it's a play on, like, yeah. Jodie Foster knowing she's a tomboy and doesn't feel comfortable with it, but that doesn't, like, doesn't make any sense. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, look at me, I'm hot, I'm dancing around in the mirror. What I kind of picked up from this, and we may or may not touch on this exact sentiment if we are going to discuss any of the possible remakes it feels like this is Barbara Harris being told to act like a child, yeah. not Barbara Harris being told to act like Jodie Foster's, like not to act like Annabelle. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. and their character is written to just be a child, not to be her daughter. Like you get the sense that Jodie Foster is playing an adult; she's not playing her mom. Barbara Harris is playing a child; she's not playing her daughter. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree, one hundred percent. And it's like that's built into the script. It's like the script forgot its own premise. It's it's very strange in that way. And I want to point out one thing because it's going to come up more than once. You talk about how the fact right after the switch, we are introduced to uh, Jodie Foster's Annabelle Andrews now in the body of her mother, Ellen Andrews, and she's become quite comfortable and she's having fun and she's dancing and she's blowing bubbles. Okay, here's the thing. Barbara Harris portrays this character 
her daughter in her body, in the adult body, as having a nonstop oral fixation. <laughs> this isn't a joke. It is clearly part of I the just, performance. I, I, I just realized it. That's the thing is I the whole movie played back and I was like, yeah, totally. She is she's either blowing bubblegum or she is chewing on her nails or she is putting something else in her mouth or she is I kid you not at times sucking on her <laughs> thumb. Yeah. At no uh, time yeah. does Jodie Foster's character when the daughter is in Jodie Foster's body do this. Yep. And right. it is such a distinct character trait that it seems insane to me that it wasn't established before the switch. It seems like almost the most obvious directing slash acting slash writing technique. It's like, give your character a very obvious uh, uh, trait. Tell. Uh, like an, a tell, an oral fixation like that, and then have the other actor imitate it. And then that's a very easy way to say that this is the same character in a different body. Except they never established it. It's only Barbara Harris that does the, it. The worst one I can think about is that stupid one in Harry Potter 4 where these like guys like licking him his lips. Um, David Tennant. Yeah. Uh, he does this thing where he just like licks, he just sticks out his tongue and licks his lips like a maniac. And then that's like Mad-Eye Moody's like tell is what they're mm -hmm. when they do the body swap it's the dumbest thing they could have picked literally anything else it's like not in the books but it's in there and it's weird as shit but like at least they had that yeah and you're right they don't have anything in this barbara harris does it but it's, it's Again, not established I, it's entirely to your point she's probably reverting to just being a child so she's like i'm gonna when they get overwhelmed yeah you know she sucks on her thumb well she's she's making these character choices that I think she was not given any assistance from, from the script or the director. I don't think they thought about it that much. I think Barbara Harris did think about it, but unfortunately what she was thinking about just isn't backed up anywhere else in the script. So she's doing this performance that's, as you said, really fun and really distinct and, and, and engaging. It's just not supported by the underlying material. I almost wonder with her too, because I did look up and she's like kind of considered one of the forerunners of improv in the 1960s. So I wonder how much she just kind of ran with it yeah. as well. Probably. Probably. Like, the thing about it, Sean, you're saying is she's not really given a good performance because they're not mimicking the character or anything like that, right? I'm – okay, let me qualify it. Like – I'm not exactly criticizing the performance that way. Like you said, I think Barbara Harris's performance is pretty good. Jodie yeah. Foster is fine. Fine. I don't think performance and the writing support the fact that these are supposed to be sure. the characters switched bodies. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not coherent. By far and away, though, my favorite part of the movie. Like, every time it switched to Jodie Foster, I was like, can we go back to Barbara Harris? You know, some shenanigans over there. Like, she... What was getting me through this film? Mm -hmm. Her performance, what she was doing. Uh, I was, I was like, yeah, this is this is fun. Like it, it definitely picked up the liveliness of the movie. Definitely, uh, you, you, you get the impression from watching her and watching all the things she's doing that she's having fun doing. Yeah, it. like when when uh, when Bill leaves for work and she just jumps on the skateboard, goes down the the streets, and and Bill's just like, what the hell is happening right now? I was like, I was pretty sweet. Like you know, just having fun. Right? I did like how Barbara Harris did that for real, that she jumped on the skateboard yeah. and skateboarded down the street. I thought that was, was a lot great. of fun. Just going off what you just said there, where you said it's – it's Barbara Harris's performance is what getting you through this movie. And that's because the next, you know, 
two thirds of the movie is until we get to the third act is essentially each person goes through the other person's day. And it's not a particularly interesting day. You keep saying this. I don't know, man. I'm going to tell you about it. This is, I'm adamant about this, but at any rate, <laughs> I don't, first of all, I don't know why they go through each other's day. <laughs> yeah. Can, that's, I can, that's the big one. <laughs> they switch bodies and Jodie Foster. So, so Ellen Andrews, the mother is like, oh great. I'm in my daughter's body. I guess I have to be her for a day. Again, this must happen all the time because they don't immediately run screaming out of the building. They don't try to find a warlock to undo this spell. They just go about their day. And now they have to do the other person's day. And I was trying to figure it out. They have a phone conversation where uh, Ellen Andrews, the mother in the body of Jodie Foster, calls the father, uh, Bill, and asks about Annabelle. And Annabelle yells to the phone. She says... Um, Make sure you do that important test and there's an important hockey game. Have fun today. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe the mother, Ellen, feels obligated to go do this important test and this important hockey game for her daughter. That's the best that I can understand why she even goes to school. I don't know why her daughter does the chores. Yeah. Why is she doing the chores? <laughs> why is she doing any of these things? There's no explanation for it. She's just like, I've switched bodies in a magical occurrence. I guess I'm going to do some laundry. Yes. This is what women do. So, like, now we're going to watch a child be an adult and try and do laundry and do chores and watch them fail. And the housewives will think it's hilarious. I guess. I just have to ask, though. So, the one of the first big things that um, Annabelle does in the body of her mother is she does the laundry. And she opens up the laundry machine and she puts in some clothes. And then she puts in some sneakers. <laughs> and then she puts in a throw rug. And then she puts in some jacks. This is a 13-year-old girl. Are we supposed to believe that this 13-year-old girl has never done laundry? Maybe. Are we supposed to believe that she doesn't understand the concept of laundry? <laughs> I, again, it goes back to this appears to be an alien in the daughter in the body <laughs> of a woman because she has seems to have no concept about what this machine does. And she obviously breaks it, but I I feel like the writers and everyone involved was going for like a home alone vibe. Where it's like, wouldn't it be crazy if, like, this little kid has to run the house? But in Home Alone, Kevin is, like, seven years old. She's 13. Like, it's a massive difference. She, But she acts as if she has no capability of running the house. 13-year-olds babysit. They stay home alone. But she's, like, overwhelmed just doing the simplest tasks. Um, I mean, I like this scene because it reveals what ended up being my favorite gimmick of the movie is that not only can the dog do laundry <laughs> and is able to inform her that she is doing laundry incorrectly, <laughs> the dog is aware that they have switched bodies because he follows her around to keep an eye on her for the rest of the film. <laughs> <laughs> it is true because the dog was following around Jodie Foster at the beginning and then follows yeah. around the mother after they switch bodies. Maybe the dog is the one that did it. Oh, magical dog. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah okay, if it, that's the case, ah, then ah, my ah, new ah, canon ah. is the dog is the horse from Darby. You'll yep, get a yep, little there too we go. <laughs> um, But that's what it was. Uh, he was having a nap in the morning, and then Jodie Foster, the first thing she does when she leaves the room is she trips over the dog. The dog is like, I'm going to get you today. I'm going to magic you up so bad. Yep. Oh, I was my having God. a nap in the... I had such a good nap spot right here in the middle of the hallway. You had to kick me first thing in the morning. Yeah, I don't know why they're doing each other's chores. Like, it... 
it, the movie doesn't happen without it. Like, that's what they're building it to. As you said, it's the premise of they wanted to see what the, the other person did in the day, right? They're like, my mom has it so easy. My daughter has it so easy. Because the mom is like, oh, typing class. That's no problem. I can win at this sports game. I'll do well at this test. And the daughter's like, how hard can chores be? Like, it's not really established, but I guess you could say that they're doing, they're going through each other's day to prove the yeah. other one wrong. I get that. And I get that premise. And I guess, I feel like I'm going to be the odd man out here. I'm super hard on this film, which is good. We can argue about it. Watching it, I feel like the author, the writer knew that there needs to be certain kind of hurdles that the characters need to get over, right? There needs to be difficulties they encounter during the day, but they've given them such ordinary lives (laughs) that in order for these to be hurdles, they need to become incompetent. So the first thing that happens is the daughter is incapable of doing laundry. And then we go back to the mother and she's going to school. And so she's going to do her daughter's chores for the day, which is going to school. And she gets to school and she says, oh, what are my daughter's classes? First thing that I noticed was for a mother that is apparently so overbearing, how does she not know what classes her daughter is taking? But whatever. She says, oh, introduction to photography. And then she's very sarcastic about it. She's like, oh, it's the principles of a fine education, introduction to photography. She goes into the photography class and she immediately turns on the lights. Not before the the very obvious setup by the the teacher just going now the most important thing about a dark room is that we don't let any light in no light whatsoever and then Jody Foster opens the door and turns on the light this is just going to interject from a moment from uh, Sean and I's past possibly yours too Rob I believe the photography teacher um is Watson from the Great Mouse Detective as he does have a role in this film oh really oh seriously oh I didn't yeah. even notice that oh that is him that's great that is fantastic. Nice. But yeah, so he's he sets up the premise that he says, don't yeah. let any light in here or else it will ruin everybody's photos. And then Jodie Foster opens the door, exposing everyone's photos, and everyone goes, oh, no. And then Jodie Foster goes, oh, let me get the lights, turns on the lights, and then everyone goes, oh, no. And then she says, do you want me to get open the blinds? The, too. the blinds. I'll open the windows for you. And at this point, you have to go, again, what alien is inhabiting this body that does not understand the concept of photography? This isn't that, oh, her class is so much harder than she expected. It's that she doesn't understand what photography is. She doesn't understand how photos are developed. She's going to school and is incapable of doing that. When she goes to the next class, it's this typing class. And she's like, oh, it's this important typing exam. She's like, I'm going to crush this. And then in order to fail, she has to be incapable of turning on her electric typewriter. That's how she fails. She cannot figure out how to turn it on. In order to make this difficult for your character, you've turned the character into an idiot. And yeah, she because she has the next round because then she actually does do well in history class. Um, and the only reason I'm bringing that up is because there's the like ginger kid in the corner that makes fun of her. Um I don't know if you'd remember this, but that is uh, Dermot Downs, who is in a few little Disney movies as a kid, uh, is currently a director on like a bunch of like CW shows. But the only reason I bring him up is because he was in the movie Billy Bad that we bought at the Fringe Festival when the three of us were doing a Fringe play when we were like 19. <laughs> oh my God. And I was just like, I was watching it and I was like, wait, Dermot, I was like, that's Dermot Downs. Like I yelled it out loud, oh like written God. on my notes in capitals. <laughs> it's Dermot Downs. I was so happy that he no was in I have no memory of what you're discussing. I have to look this up right now. All right. Well, we'll just pause this entire episode while Robbie yeah. looks up Dermot Downs. <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't recognize him from anything. I don't even know if you were there, but Sean and I have definitely watched it. Anyway, that's my like random bit of like so, weird VHS movie trivia was I loved that he was in this that, film. 
Dermot Downs, that ginger kid, as you said, he was, like, razzing Jodie Foster's character so hard throughout the course of, like, the beginning half of this movie. And then you find out they're on, like, they're the like water best ski friends. team together. Yeah, they're like, they're like, get in the car, Jody, we gotta go! And the only reason why I thought that they used him for that later on is because he was a character who had lines and they didn't want to pay another actor, so they just tossed him on That's it. exactly what it is. One other thing that jumps out at me is that, so, the characters, uh of uh, Jodie Foster's friends in school as they're all hanging out. I did like how once... So Jodie Foster's changed in performance. I mentioned before that she acts like a 45-year-old woman before the transformation, and she acts like a 45-year-old woman after the transformation. The one difference is that she refers to everyone else as uh, honey, I believe. And her friends are so thrown off by this that um, they start asking her what's going on. And she's like, I'm no longer Annabelle. I am Annabelle's mother. And they say, what a fun game. We're all going to pretend to be our mothers. And then they all proceed to Im- do impressions of their mothers, which all involve British accents. Uh, <laughs> and I thought it was amazing that apparently all of their mothers are British and say things like, don't tarry, darling. <laughs> Cutting back to uh, the mother. So Barbara Harris performing the role of her daughter now within the mother's body um, is trying to keep up with all of the chores in the house. They do have a <laughs> housekeeper that comes in. Uh, this is Mrs. Schmaus, who is going to come in and do some of the chores around the house, which again, how is this such an overwhelming day? I don't really understand. I know you mentioned that seven people show up at the same time. I think it's a little odd that she scheduled so many of the things to happen on the same day. I was just like, I remember I was like, what the hell is happening right now? She's this having the drapes done, the carpets done, and the car is fixed all at the same time. They're all being dropped off at the same time. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to interject and just cut back to the note you brought up and re- re- revisit my Freudian slip that like a good 1950s housewife, this is what she can do for a job. The mom could juggle seven people all coming over at the same time and have it all done because that's what a good housewife does. That is fair enough. But she's so overwhelmed by having seven people come to her at the same time that she drops to the floor and begins sucking her thumb. I'm not exaggerating. That is what the character does. She drops to the floor and begins sucking her thumb, which is what 13-year-old Annabelle Andrews, I guess, is doing in that (laughs) circumstance. But uh, she forces everyone out of the house, and she then decides that she is going to recover by calling up her her crush from across the street, Boris, and asks him to bring some pet food, some kibble. And he hands it to her, and she comments, she goes, ah, made from real horse. (laughs) I had to Google this, because I was like, what? Now, apparently in the 70s, it was still common for pet food to be made out of horse meat. I bring this up because I believe it is very important for later on. (laughs) There is a key third act point that revolves around Uh, horse meat. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. So her and Boris have a little date. Uh, They go hang out outside. Uh, They go throw a boomerang around and break a window. Uh, They have a kind of creepy flirtatious encounter where Boris falls in love with this old woman and then keeps complaining about how awesome she is compared to her loser daughter. Um, I thought it was a little bold that he was so uh, 
critical of her daughter in front of her i mean even outside of the magical circumstances i feel like you're you're taking a big risk being like uh it's fun hanging out with you not like your stupid loser daughter who sucks <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i said that every time i was at rob's house waiting for him to come home <laughs> hanging out with his folks but maybe that's just me <laughs> you jerk <laughs> it's really creepy um that whole scene was really creepy it is creepy, and I think I have more notes about just how it, it, it crosses some lines. It does cross some lines, but I thought they were going to cross way more, and I'm actually glad they had a as much restraint as they did. What lines do you think they crossed, Bob? I mean, I think I'm just going with the, thing, the same thing with Rob, is that I was just like, oh, are they going to kiss? Like, oh no, this boy's like <laughs> straight up in love with this older woman. Like, it was... It, it was <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, maybe it was, I mean... I thought he was, was like, going to try and make a move. I, I don't know. It, it was weird. I mean, it's supposed to be a 13-year-old girl on the body of a 40-year-old woman hitting on a 15-year-old or 14-year-old boy. But it was just so, it was just really awkward. And I understand that's the point, but I was like, oh, this is, like, kind of pervy. They wouldn't, like, put this in a movie today. I don't know. They probably would. I mean, <laughs> they probably, yeah, it'd be much worse. So, just going back again to my description of Barbara Harris portraying this as a drunk six-year-old, um, <laughs> there are a few moments when... She's becoming overwhelmed with all the chores when the washing machine is broken, when everyone who needs her assistance is coming to the door at the exact same time. And she gets a phone call. She gets a phone call from her father, Bill. She goes, Bill? Bill who? Who's Bill? She knows who her father is. Why is this character so drunk? Why does she respond to everything like, who is Bill? Not, not, nothing in this no. movie makes sense. It's about a body swap. We're supposed to just take it at face value, as I said. If they're just showing us scenes, none of it's supposed to be any sort of coherent. You're supposed to have some sort of enjoyment out of it. And at the end, you know they're going to switch back on their bodies. Yeah. And, and, and one of the nice things about this premise, I should say, is that there is a ticking clock throughout the whole film that does give this movie a sense of urgency. To an extent. Is there? What is the ticking also, clock? Also, the timeline, none of this makes any sense. Like, the latter half of the day, afternoon, is about three days worth of stuff that happens. And then it's just all like, oh, it's, by the way, it's five o'clock now. And you're just like, what the hell is happening? I, I did have another note. We're getting into some more classic, the true theme of the podcast, which is how to cheat at sports. <laughs> um, where the other sports team just proceeds to beat Jodie Foster within an inch of her life with their field hockey sticks in order to win yeah, the game. Right. And then this cuts to the aspect of, like, a grown woman would know not to score on her own net. Yeah, so let's just talk about that for a second. The last thing that Jodie Foster, uh, sorry, the last thing that... Ellen Andrews, the mother, has to do in Jodie Foster's body, so in her daughter's body, is she has to do this important field hockey game. Her daughter is the captain of the team. She's extremely good at field hockey. She goes out onto the field. She doesn't know how to play field hockey. Okay, that is perfectly believable. There's interesting things that can happen. It's This is not at all what I expected the interesting things to happen to be. She loses, obviously, but the way she loses is twofold. One, the other team, like Bobby said, beats her. With their sticks. They just go out on the field and they just go to town. There's no... As they have been instructed by their coach, who is cheering them on the whole time. And yelling, kill, yep. kill, kill. So yeah. they take their sticks and they just hack at her. Like, there's, I don't know what the referee is doing in this game. I don't think there's 
there's a referee. It's just the two coaches who happen to not be on the sidelines, just running up and down the field with their players. But the the entire team strategy is run at Jodie Foster and hit her with your stick as hard as you can. So they hack at Jodie Foster, and then when Jodie Foster finally gets the puck ball, it's field hockey. Uh, she runs it in the wrong direction and scores on her own goal after everyone is screaming at her, don't do that. What are you doing? Don't do this to me, Annabelle. Don't, don't, don't. And then she scores on the goal and then they go, oh my God. And again, you have to be like, you're an alien. That's the only explanation for this. You like, I, I understand you're not good at field hockey, but in order to make this plot make sense, you have major character someone who does not understand what field hockey is or sports in general or sports or any kind of point system what winning or losing is yeah <laughs> you know it's like they've come to this planet and they go competition what is that and then i don't know what time she finishes her game and has done school but she then has time to make her way downtown have her crowd father sign off on his credit cards and go on a shopping spree and get a complete makeover before the the ski yeah but before the water the, before the water ski uh, yeah what do they call it aquacade yeah aquacade yeah. <laughs> yeah my own thoughts on this is that so this movie understands that it needs to have some kind of a third act climax and it needs to have a ticking clock there needs to be something that moves the plot forward that the characters need to deal with what the movie decides that is is the father's presentation. Yeah. <laughs> this is a movie about two women, and it makes the only thing in their day that matters the father's presentation. Yeah. I, can't you give either of these characters any kind of um, activity that is important to them that is the root of the importance of this movie? The movie, if both of these characters said, fuck it, and went to the beach, the only problem is for the father. The movie acts as if that is the only person that matters. Because it is. Because the two most important things they have to do in the day is the mother has to, at first, simply show up and be beautiful, and then cook the buffet for the entirety of the marina. And the daughter's most important part of the day is to do some stunts on her water skis so her dad looks good. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is the yep. climax of the movie, is, as you say, making sure dad looks good. It is shockingly offensive, and I understand that the movie pokes fun at the misogyny at times and makes comments about the father being a chauvinist pig because he keeps putting more and more responsibilities on uh, his wife and his daughter. But at the same time, the writer is choosing this to be the entire act of the movie like it, the writer has not given either of these characters any agency for themselves they just don't have any lives outside of their father and husband it's bizarre i want to uh bring up one of my favorite characters in the whole film was the uh, marching band instructor yeah, yeah. Do you remember this guy? I, I, I have a note, and I he's wearing a full suit. He's got a boutonniere on, <laughs> and he has like two lines of dialogue, and he makes the most random ass noise I've ever heard. Rather than talking to her, he's he's the best character. It was so funny. He was a character actor, and that was his shtick. That was actually his thing. And you oh, just suddenly really? made sense of my note as I said. Why? Because I have a note, like, band instructor is that guy. And you were like, he has a suit and he hits his mouth. And I was like, he's that guy. But that's it. Like, that's for Jodie Foster's day. I mean, we could talk a little bit about the makeover later and her going down to her, her dad's, uh, or I guess her husband's office. But we haven't really covered too much of what... Uh, what what else has she done? I mean, we did. We, she, we, we did discuss briefly that she has a 
nervous breakdown where she reverts to being a three-year-old on the floor yep. sucking her thumb. Yeah. Um, then she goes on a date. Yeah. With then she a goes on a date with a boy. teenage boy across the street. Um, yeah. So, she, so then, she gets the phone call from her husband, and this is the point I touched on it earlier, where he says, "Hey." The catering fell through, but it's just 25 people. You've got this, right? The guys are going to come for drinks to our house after work, which never pays off. They never actually do. He says, hey, when you're picking up um, Sparky yes, that's uh, right. from school, go get us a bunch of booze. Um, that's right. <laughs> and uh, and pick up our son f- uh, for lunch. The mom uh, is supposed to be a kid, doesn't know how to drive, so she walks to school, brings a bunch of groceries, including a bottle of gin, to her kid's school. Her, her very young son, seven-year-old son's school. Um, and then has a baseball game? She has time for a full baseball game. A full baseball game with Seth, the Little Rascals. She she plays baseball with the Little Rascals, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, too. I love that. The mom was having such a blast in that. The mom was having a blast. I just have to question what these other kids were thinking, because... <laughs> the best part, they never actually set up the premise. There was no scene where the, the they're like, hey, we're short one person. And the guy's like, my mom can play, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just straight into the scene. She's at bat. And it's like, oh, they, they, they skipped some stuff here. But I didn't care because we got to watch that scene. So this is supposed to be a 13-year-old girl playing baseball with seven-year-old boys. Uh, which is maybe slightly less weird, but what we're watching, what all of the other kids are seeing (laughs) is an adult woman trying as hard as she possibly can to beat a bunch of seven-year-olds at baseball. She's running as fast as she can. She's hitting that ball as hard as she can. She's the pitcher. She's the pitcher. (laughs) I mean, it feels like a joke where you watch like an adult playing kids and then beating the kids and then just be like, yeah, yeah. Yes, and then the kids are sad exactly because they was. just lost the game. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, at the end of the day, what happens, she has to, as Bobby said, cook this buffet for everyone at the father's presentation because everything in this movie yeah. revolves around making the father look good. And yeah. uh, she has to do a buffet for 25 people. So she tries to cook a turkey in three hours. It's impossible. She can't do it. So she ends up burning the turkey um, this again cuts to my favorite gimmick of the film the dog instructs her that she is cooking wrong <laughs> yes <laughs> explain that bobby oh he because he, again when he's doing laundry and she kind of looks at the dog and puts the soap in the dog gives this kind of nose and a look of like i don't know annabelle <laughs> and, <it's> like, hmm. <laughs> and he comes to do it again when she puts the turkey in the oven after saying like oh well six hours i'll just double the temperature and cook it in half the time the dog walks in and like I don't know, Annabelle. <laughs> it's the same look and the same noise. As I say, the dog is, you know, Robbie's theory of the dog is actually a genie and has done this on purpose is really starting to play out rather well. <laughs> and I, I, I freaked out at this moment, too, because I think she's trying to make some sort of chocolate dessert and she throws it on the floor and the dog goes to eat it. And I, I panicked because as much as the dog is aware of everything that's going on, he does not seem to know that eating chocolate will kill him. And I <laughs> luckily, he, I think they stop him from eating it. And like that was the that was the height of tension in this movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> that had you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. So she burns the 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 turkey. All of the food is ruined, and she has to leave immediately to go to this aquacade. And so at this point, she tells Boris, "Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take." 
that pet food that you brought, and we're going to make a Louisiana casserole out of this. I remind you, the pet food is horse meat. Yeah. So she makes a casserole out of horse meat. (laughs) And the third act of this movie is she gets in the car and she's like, we need to get this horse meat to dad. (laughs) That's what the ticking clock is, is that they decide if we don't get this horse meat to dad, oh my God, it'll be a disaster. Boris doesn't have a license. He refuses to drive. She doesn't know how to drive. She says openly, if I drive... We're all going to die, but I'll do it anyway. She's doing this to rush horse meat to dad. Why is she doing this? Because otherwise dad is going to look bad. He's going to look bad when you feed them horse meat. (laughs) None of this makes sense. Annabelle is uh, being picked up to go uh, perform at this aquacade. So Annabelle does water skiing stunts. Um, she is going to perform for her father's presentation because her father, even though this is a very expensive and important presentation, he's just getting his daughter to do all the work for him. It's, 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 he's not a very nice guy. Um, and so she gets rushed there, but she doesn't know how to water ski because it's actually her mother in Jodie Foster's body. While Ellen Andrews is forced to go out and water ski, even though she doesn't know, they, Basically, both say at the exact same time, I wish I was back in my own body. Because this is Coke Jinx universe, where everybody uh, switches bodies as soon as they say the same thing, they immediately switch bodies again, except this time the magic is switched where they don't travel mentally into their body, their body comes to them. So somehow, Jodie Foster now is the one driving the car. So Annabelle Andrews in her 13-year-old Jodie Foster body is driving the car. And Barbara Harris in her adult woman body is now water skiing. And I will say that after an hour and 10 minutes of absolutely nothing happening in this movie, suddenly everything happens in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it goes from field hockey to I need to outrun the police because they've sent five squad cars after me. Well, it basically becomes uh, the climax to Blues Brothers. Like, they got (laughs) dozens of cop cars going over (laughs) cliffs and stuff. Like, it's insane. There's some stunt work in this film at the the last moment. There's some really nice stunt work that uh, the car driving over the bridge with its wheels just on the hand railing was really well done. Yeah, there's there's a huge amount of stunts uh, where Jodie Foster is driving a car through town being chased by cops and they are running through LA and so they go through the LA River. Herbie the Love Bug. She's driving a Volkswagen Beetle. It's, it's probably the same car. Like Knowing just the way studios work, they probably did just paint it orange. And so Return of the Jedi style, they're basically cutting back and forth between these, these multiple action sequences where Barbara Harris is water skiing and then somehow she's now paragliding because she runs into a paraglider so she starts paragliding around This happens very quickly. This movie ramps up to 100 very, very quickly. Um, I will say that there was a a moment that I liked where uh, Annabelle Jodie Foster is driving on the sidewalk and we get kind of like a Richard Lester Superman 2 moment where (laughs) like there's just a bunch of goofy characters jumping out of the way. First, it's the guy with the stand up (laughs) face. 
a guy with a stand-up bass is out running her, and then there's a guy on crutches, and he has to, like, throw his crutches and just run full tilt away from this car. I mean, it, it reminded me of Superman 2 with the guy in, in the roller skates once the, like, the, the Superman action sequence starts, where it just keeps cutting to all of these goofy characters running out of the way of all of the demolition. So now Jodie Foster's back in her own body driving the car. Jodie Foster, in fact, it's a joke because Boris is like, whoa, what just happened? Uh, Annabelle, how did you get here? You're a totally different person. And Jodie Foster just goes, yeah, whatever, shut up. And just keeps driving because she's so used to this magic at this point. She's just like, this just happens, okay? Catch up, Boris. We're living in a magical world. She's breaking so many laws, but the stakes are so low. This movie has no stakes for the characters. Mm -hmm. The only stakes are held by the father. And even then, who the F cares? But she's just like, I am going to demolish our car. I'm going to probably kill so many cops. Yeah. Just so that I can get there to feed this dog food to my dad's co-workers. It's the stakes make no sense. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this is basically the end of the movie. Uh, They get there. The mother survives her action sequence where she's paragliding, water skiing. She lands in the water. The mother climbs into the, the, the car as everyone sinks into the sea, including John Austin and his co-workers, because all of the action has sunk the little uh, We bar. never talked about one of the co-workers. Uh, the, the king from Spaceballs. It is Dick Van Patten. It, it is the king from Spaceballs, yeah. yeah. It, it is the king of the Druids, and their boss is Alan Oppenheimer, who is Skeletor from the original Masters of the Universe cartoon. <laughs> nice. The movie ends with Skeletor being so pleased with the day, the way the day's events went, that the climax succeeded. The mom and daughter came together and the dad looked great. Because he's just laughing, drinking wine as they're basically drowning in the marina they just opened. Yeah, actually when the barge collapsed, everyone's laughing. And I think the reason is they're all drunk as shit. This is a movie about alcoholism. John Austin's co-workers yeah. are just drunk out of their gourd. They're so drunk and John Austin's like, we need some more booze to keep these guys plastered. And the entire barge is sinking and they're just drinking more and laughing, being like, this is the best show I've ever seen. This is a movie about the dangers of alcohol. (laughs) The very end of the movie, then it cuts back to the house. They're back in their normal bodies. Jodie Foster is going to go out on a date with Boris. Uh, She's going to bring her brother along because she's learned to respect and appreciate her brother. She has a better relationship with her mother now because they've seen what each of them goes through. John Austin is losing his mind. He is having a panic attack. Well, assumably because he has been dealing with police officers for the past three hours. <laughs> Almost certainly. About the vehicle chase his car was involved in, the amount of damages he probably has to pay the city back for all the vehicles his daughter wrecked while driving their car. The laws she broke, the people she almost yeah. killed. Plus and all of the things that went wrong at the aqua bay as well. No, no, no. The aqua, the aqua marine, that, that went off without a hitch. Skeletor was laughing his ass off. That was fine. It went off without a hitch, except... He witnessed his daughter transform into his wife while on a parasail and cannot rectify it. He keeps trying to say, what did I see with my eyes? How did this happen? And they're just like, shut up, dad. It doesn't matter. Um, He sits down. He's in shock. He gets into an argument with his son. Uh, his son goes, well, you don't know what it's like to be me. He says, well, you don't know what it's like to be me. The mother says, oh, you guys don't want to go through with this. Don't say anything more. And then they both at the exact same time say, oh, yes, we do. And then dun, dun, dun. It's a cliffhanger presuming that those two are then going to switch bodies. That brings us to 
the end of the movie. I liked that the score completely switched notes, and it was a psycho-style horror theme at the end of this. That <laughs> when mom and daughter switch places, that's a hilarious romp. But when boy and dad switch bodies, like, wow, this is not going to end well for anybody. Well, we can find out because there are two sequels to this movie. There are? There are two sequels to the book. Mary Rogers wrote two sequels to Freaky Friday. The first sequel is called Summer Switch. And it is about the father and the son switching bodies. I have not read the book. There is a movie that is based on this book. It might have been made by Disney because it was a straight-to-TV ABC Sunday night movie. It wasn't a Wonderful World of Disney movie, but it was an ABC movie. Mm. You might be able to find it if you order it online, but it is not on Disney+. Plus. There is a second sequel. Mary Rogers wrote a third book in this trilogy called Billions for Boris. the third book is about the neighbor kid the plot of the third book is that boris at a thrift store sale finds a tv that can receive transmissions of horse races from the future (laughs) so it's it's back to the future it's biff's plan from back to the future just Uh, horse races nothing else for boris was also made into a movie not done by disney in the Billions for Boris film, you may recognize the character of Apeface, credited <laughs> as Apeface, but presumably is still the younger brother of Annabelle Andrews, was played by Seth Green. Wow. So yeah. Seth Green starred in the third movie in the Freaky Friday trilogy that came out in the mid-80s. So if you want to know what happens to them later on, you can find that out. Or if you just haven't had enough Freaky Friday, well, you can watch the remakes, which we also did. And we are going to briefly talk about that. So the remake came out in 2003, I believe, or was it 2004? It's 2003. 2003. Because that is my first note about this remake was, wow, is this ever 2003? (laughs) Bobby, tell me who it stars. Okay, so we've got, uh, you've got Lindsay Lohan in the role of Annabelle. Um, you've got the mother, and that is going to be played by Jamie Lee Curtis in this. I did read that Jamie Lee Curtis was actually a last minute replacement for, who was it, Annette Bening? There was, she replaced somebody else at the very last minute. Um, and she apparently had five or seven days to prepare for the role. That is insane to me because my review of this movie is that whatever Jamie Lee Curtis was paid, it was not enough. She is great in this movie. There is also, I did read too, that um, when Disney originally pitched this, they approached Jodie Foster to reprise the role, but to play Anna, but to play her mother in this. Oh, damn, that would have been Jody great. And Jodie Foster turned it that down would because be cool. she didn't want to overshadow the film. Oh, man. That... That's actually kind of brilliant. That that would have that would have been a really nice thing. I see why at this point Jodie Foster's like, look, man, I'm like 46. I'm not doing that now. But that, that would have like I, you could see why they thought this would have been the right time to do that. You mean I got to go water skiing? No, Jody, <laughs> it's it's a different movie. <laughs> it is a different movie, and uh, I never watched it. I've actually never seen the remake ever. Although I did watch the Parent Trap this weekend. Does that count? It does count. And apparently, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was excited to work with Lindsay Lohan, but her first question was, "Which twin did she play?" Because she wasn't aware that Lindsay Lohan had handled both roles in the Parent Trap, and she was very impressed with her performance. Lindsay Lohan is also actually really good in um, this movie. I think both Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan are great. I think. In contrast to the 1976 version, both of them are playing very distinct characters and they're doing very reasonable facsimilations of each other. 
when they inhabit each other's bodies and play each other's roles. From a structural standpoint, I have a lot to say about the difference between these movies, but just in keeping with the positive stuff, I will say that the remake picks up on something that the original definitely missed out on. And that is, the original never has those two characters together. The mother is never with the daughter. Yeah, this this one is this one is like a buddy cop movie where it's so much better. Yeah. The buddy cop chemistry between these two characters as they're forced to deal with each other in their own bodies is brilliant. It's the best part of the movie and I cannot believe that the 1976 version just missed out on well, that. And, and and they never actually had them talk to each other. Never. Throughout the course of the film until they switch back. It's like they go out of their way to avoid it. They have a weird Wrath of Khan scenario where they're just <laughs> never in the same yeah. room. It's bizarre. Like, they never have a conversation with each other. And I thought that would be something they would have done in, in the 1978 version. The mom clearly does. She tries to call and get a hold of her. But, like... How do you not, if you do body swap with somebody, are you not concerned what the other person is doing with your body? In the 1976 version, it seems clear that this happens all the time. They live in a world in which these body swaps are happening all the time. (laughs) But that being said, it's still uh, an absolute miss that that screenplay just didn't realize that they needed to have these two characters interact. Uh, It never happens once. In the remake, it happens basically throughout the entire movie. It's like 75% of the movie are these two characters together, and they are fantastic together. It's hilarious. They are charming as fuck. And they, the one thing we, you were kind of touching up in the first movie was, what are the stakes of this film? Why don't they just go home and just figure out how to get out of this situation? It's that within this day, both of them have things they have to do. As the mom is like, no, I can't cancel my appointments. These These people have booked. I see these people every day. And the daughter is... Well, I have to take my SAT scores. You have to go and pass this for me, or I'm not getting. I'm not getting into college. Like they do, do a little bit of. Oh, you mean they have their own things to do? Yeah, and that's exactly in contrast to the original. Is that in the remake? Yes, both of these characters have stakes. They have motivations, and there are things that both characters need to achieve by the end of the day in order to not only rectify their short-term problem, the body switch, but also their long-term character arcs. And so that brings me into kind of, I guess, my big picture comments about these movies. In the original 1976 version, I made the comment that it was written by the author of the book. It was her first screenplay, and it felt like someone who had never written a screenplay before. It felt like someone who'd never read a book about writing a screenplay before, because it was a lot of internal monologue. There were no character arcs story was not constructed to give the characters any kind of meaningful obstacles that they had to overcome and grow. Um, There was no themes tied into any of that. In contrast, the remake feels like it was written by people who read way too many books about screenplay. Yes. (laughs) You can basically feel the gears turning. Every single element above it is choreographed and drawn and i can picture the writer with a copy of save the cat open in front of them and they are basically just typing out on page six you need a turn on page 12 you need the one act break on page 15 you need this to happen and it is extremely predictable and you can see how every single point is tied into almost like studio notes but i'm It's more just that the screenwriter knows exactly the type of movie that Disney wanted to make at the time. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, stereotypical of kind of formulaic screenwriting is the book Save the Cat, which was written by the guy who wrote Blank Check, which (laughs) is a Disney movie from the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And 
these Disney movies all kind of follow the exact same formula. You know, you can almost put it to a clock and you can say at 23 minutes, this happens at 46 minutes, this happens. I loved all the little, little things that, as I said, just stood out to me as this is like, this is 2003. Like what band was popular in 2003? We got to talk about the hives. The hives come up a couple of times in this movie in conversation. She's an edgy girl. What does she like? Emily strange. There's an Emily strange poster on the wall in her bedroom. Um, even like down to the way, like, the fact that, like, oh, look at him. He's, like, the high school dreamboat as he walks in with, like, his baggy jeans, his, like, shaggy haircut, a Von Dutch t-shirt and a soul patch. I'm like, yes, this is 2003. I was there in 2003. <laughs> I remember what this is like. And all of those little things, all those little things just kind of made me chuckle. But it was this little note from me of just how much Disney micromanaged things at the time, or at least seemed to it. They're like, no, this, these are the things that have to be in this movie. It's a movie made by checklist in a lot of ways. And I think while we're talking about that, we have to talk about one of the big changes from the 1976 version is that in the 1976 version, as I was so happy to see, they operated on Groundhog Day rules where it's like, what's the magic? Who the fuck cares? It just happened. In this version, they operate under different rules. We, we get to play our favorite game from the Adventures of Boulder Griffin. Oh, no. Spot no. the racism. No. We get to play Spot the Racism. And the best part about this is that Disney very clearly... Uh, was not willing to put a, <laughs> this movie contains uh, inappropriate racial stereotypes because it's a movie from 2003 and that would be far too embarrassing. But it probably should contain that because the entire premise of this magic is that they go out for Chinese food and they interact with... Uh, it's the restaurant owner and the restaurant owner's mother who you're left to assume is some kind of witch. It is so uncomfortable. It is so wrong. And it's one of the only movies, I think, where you take a remake 20 years, 25 years later, and it's somehow more racist. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> you know, I have, I have exactly the same note. Somehow more racist. <laughs> Actually. And the thing about the somehow more racist, like I said, they didn't even have to do it. But getting back into the concept of... This movie read too many books about screenwriting. What happens is you have this structure where you say, okay, we have these characters that have character flaws. They need to overcome their character flaws in order to overcome the primary obstacle that they have encountered in the A story. And usually you put the character flaws in a B story. And the B story is something more closely developed to the character. It's often their romantic interests. It's often something family-based. And the problem they're having in this B story mirrors the problem they have in the A story. And so once they learn how to overcome the problem in the B story, once they learn how to be more open with their friends, uh, a better romantic partner, they better understand their family, that will teach them what they need to overcome the A story. There is a shortcut to writing this standard screenplay structure that says, well, instead of having an A story and a B story, you take the character arc and you make the A story into a magical curse that says you can overcome this curse as soon as you overcome your character flaw. You just make it explicit. You say, this curse is you cannot undo this body switch until you learn what it's like to be in the other person's body. It allows you to skip any reason why character growth would actually help you overcome your problem because you just make it an explicitly magical curse. And that's what they did. They said, we're going to make this a magical curse where we tell them, you need to learn what it's like to be in the other person's body, and then you can switch back. 
And so that is the problem they have to overcome. And it's very straightforward. It's very easy. And I kind of hate it. I kind of hate that entire structure for this. I movie. mean, I have the word written down twice because of the way they describe it. So, Rob, you haven't seen it. What happens is it's the restaurant owner's mother sees the mother and daughter arguing at dinner because they're having kind of a pre-dinner because mom is getting remarried because Lindsay Lohan's dad died some years ago. And that's kind of hinted at being like the underlying issue between them is that they're having trouble moving forward in this new relationship. The mother of the restaurant owner gives each of them cursed fortune cookies which when they read they will change places <laughs> and then for the rest of the film they refer to the magic as some sort of strange asian voodoo this is 2003 i wrote it down twice because they the line comes up twice and i was like strange asian voodoo okay do you think that was workshopped i'm just trying to think of the line strange asian voodoo do you think that was workshopped they were like I, what can we say here uh what's not too offensive they're like i don't know yeah. Let, let's not only be racist against Asian people, let's also be racist against Caribbean people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then let's double our racism for the price of yeah. one. Yeah. We're, we're, we're being we're being racist to more people, not one specified group. So it's Listen, okay. if we're racist to enough people, it's called equality. OK, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I'm you, you know, we were saying this when it was written by committee. That's what the producer said when he walked in and he made them put that line into the film. So the original movie is a very good picture of 1958. Yeah, <laughs> even though it was made in 1976. <laughs> And the sequel is a very clear picture of 2003. To, so, to, to the point of like the music covers, like there's that, they have that rock out moment where they all rock out to that pop punk cover of a uh, Britney Spears song. Yeah. Um, as they're driving down the highway, there's the uh, Joey Ramone cover of Wonderful World. To much to my surprise, there is an Andrew WK song in this movie. I know, uh, I heard that too. I was like, is that Andrew WK? I actually like pointed at the TV. I was like Leonardo DiCaprio pointing, that's it. That's it. Do they do they have cell phones in this? Because there's like a lot of movies that cell phones ruin the premise of entirely. You know, like all the problems you can't really do. Uh, no. The mom has a cell phone, and the mom has a cell phone and a pager because that's supposed to be one of her character flaws is that she's too organized and too uptight uh, and needs to learn to let go. This is 2003, and as we all know, being high school students in 2003, the only people that had cell phones were drug dealers. So Lindsay Lohan does not have a cell phone. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and they, and as we kind of said, it's a buddy cop movie where they touch base with each other throughout the day being like, you have to do this and I have to do this. And then when this is all done, we'll figure out how to undo this curse. You know what? It does what it needs to do. 90% of that, I think, is Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan. I thought they were fantastic and I had fun with the movie. I had way more fun with than the 1976 one. Uh, I have problems with the film, but... Um, I do have a note that as much as you kind of feel bad for Ape Face in the first movie... I could not fucking stand her younger brother. That child was so annoying. Oh, yeah. Okay. That jumped out at me, too. And I thought, again, that felt like a screenplay note. It felt like yeah. the 1976 screenplay, nobody gave her notes on anything. And I felt, I felt like there were lots of problems with it, stuff that didn't make sense. This movie, way too many notes. But you can tell one of the issues is somebody would have said, Annabelle's too mean to her brother. Part of the premise is that she hates her brother and she has to learn how to love her brother. But if her brother is this angel, like in 1976, it makes us not like Annabelle. Like, she's just overly cruel to this really nice kid. And so they overcompensate. And so in the remake, he's a nightmare. He's an yeah. awful demon child. And so yeah, yeah, they yeah, are yeah. constantly fighting. Uh, 
And so she has to learn to kind of love him despite their antagonism. But yeah, that's a huge distinction between the two movies. I mean, it, it, as you say, it is a note. It, his name is literally literally on his chest. Uh, Boris does come back for a cameo in this film. Sorry, is it the actor? The, it is the same actor who played Boris. He is playing a character named Boris who works for Boris Delivery Services. And he walks on screen with a name tag on and the company name holding a package. Oh my god, you're right. I totally missed that. I'm an idiot. So what happened to his billions? Um, they didn't work. He now is a courier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's non-canonical within the Disney universe. <laughs> the, the sequel was made by a different company, you know? It, it, it's like unlicensed Thor movies. I, I don't know if that technically <laughs> counts as part of the MCU. Before uh, we get into talking a little bit about what the rank would be for these, I have to say there is a third. Freaky Friday movie on Disney+. Plus. There is a Freaky Friday that was made in 2018, a Disney Channel movie. Uh, a little bit of background on this. In 2014, I believe, somewhere around there, uh, the musical, theatrical musical division of Disney decided to create a musical version of Freaky Friday. Uh, they do this a lot. There's a lot of musical versions of films that are on Broadway. A lot of them are very successful, obviously. The Lion King, one of the most successful Broadway musicals of all time. You can still see Newsies, Aladdin, all of that stuff sitting on Broadway. They tried to create Freaky Friday as a musical. Didn't open on Broadway. They opened in Virginia. <laughs> now, that is not entirely unheard of. Lots of musicals open outside of Broadway to get some kind of feedback, to kind of experiment, to see how things are going. But after doing a run in Virginia, they didn't go to Broadway. They went to Ohio. And they did a run in Ohio. And then after Ohio, they said, fuck it, we're going to license it to schools. Uh, and so you can see this musical version of Freaky Friday at your local high school. In fact, if we did this episode one year ago in June 2021, could have been a road trip episode and you guys could have gone to Ross Stern to see Freaky Friday <laughs> performed at the Ross Stern High School. I mean, I'm, I'm regretting that I didn't. I was here around this time last year. I could have done that. <laughs> Ross Stern, Saskatchewan. This musical version of Freaky Friday was adapted uh, in 2018 to be uh, into a Disney Channel original movie. And I watched it. Oh, I no. was just going to say, before you get into what you're going to say about it, my hat is off to you because everything I read about it, I was like, no. <laughs> this took me three tries. The first time I tried to watch it, I couldn't get through the second musical number. Wow. The second time, I got probably another 10 minutes and then said, oh, God, no. <laughs> It took me three tries to force myself to get through the entirety of this film, holding my eyes open and screaming. Welcome to the new cover image of our podcast, everybody. That was a live photo of the enlisted help Sean required to watch this film. There's just a few things I want to say about this film. The first is this. It starts out, and instead of opening on... Uh, the morning with the two characters interacting with one another for breakfast. We do get sunrise. Camera goes into the Annabelle's room, but she is hanging out with her two friends from high school. Now, immediately I said, why are her friends in her room before breakfast? That's odd. It's not totally inexplicable, but it's just a little odd. Uh, then she goes downstairs for breakfast and all of her mother's employees are in the kitchen. And her mother is no longer a psychiatrist, like in the 2003 remake. Her mother is a caterer 
slash chef, and she is going to be catering her own wedding. This is the big deal that she's going to be doing. And she is inspecting all of the dishes that they are going to be serving at this wedding. And it is in her kitchen with all of her catering staff before breakfast while her family is eating bacon and eggs. And at this point, I was very perplexed about why all of her staff was at her house before breakfast. And then I realized, oh, wait, this was written to be performed in a high school where they build one set. Uh. It was written so that you build one set and every character is there, even if it makes no fucking sense. All of the employees are in the kitchen. All of the friends are in the kitchen. That is where you do this entire sequence. And you get through the first act of this entire play with one set. But... When you're adapting it into a movie, you could build a different set. They just chose not to. And that, I think, is the standard (laughs) of what you are seeing in this film. Now, they do a couple songs at the beginning singing about, you don't know what it's like to be me, if only I could be you for one day. It's tough, but it is what it is. They switch bodies. There isn't any racism this time. The father left them these, these magical hourglasses so like sand hourglasses so they have one magical hourglass and they're both holding it at the same time and they say they sing a song about you don't know what it's like to be me and then they switch bodies and the hourglass is destroyed during this because they're so shocked that they switch bodies and at this point they say oh well isn't there a second magical hourglass dad before he died left us two magical hourglasses And then the mother says, oh, well, I was so um, forlorn and upset about uh, father dying that I sold. I sold it. I got rid of it. Uh, I sold it to a antique store. I don't know which one it is. It's one of the antique stores in town. And they try to figure out where the hourglass is. And they find out it could be in one of any 33 antique stores. And they're trying to figure out how are we going to get to 33 antique stores? And now at this point, I said, well, you could call them. It's going to take. 20 minutes like you just call you just go through a phone book no hi do you have it no hi do you have it no like when did that stop being an option but whatever (laughs) we get scenario where they both need to go through each other's day it's similar to the remake the mother now has to go do these interviews because she's the first woman ever to cater her own wedding i kid you not that's the plot good good uh so she has to do these interviews with, like, Catering Monthly, who are like, you're the first woman ever to cater her own wedding. What is it like? Uh, the daughter goes to school. She goes to biology class. And she sits down next to the boyfriend character. It's a similar character that Boris held in the original one. It's a similar character to the boyfriend character in the remake. Except the difference is, is how in both of those films, uh, it sort of went to great lengths to have the adult woman in the body of a teenage daughter... Uh, avoid trying to be in any kind of romantic scenario with a young man. Um, In this movie, she has an entire song and dance number about how horny she is for this 15-year-old boy. (laughs) That is a choice. It is quite explicit. My husband's dead. I just want to get with this 15-year-old boy. I'm (laughs) grieving. Well, she's getting married. Remember, it's the same plot. She's getting married. Oh, yeah. I forgot that already. The next day, they have the rehearsal wedding that evening, but she has a song about how horny she is for this 15-year-old boy. So they figure out a way to find this magical hourglass, and the way they do it is this. And this brings in the daughter's hurdle and the daughter's arc about what she needs to accomplish. So she doesn't have a pop-punk band. She doesn't have a band audition. And now at this point, I have to question 
Why? You are remaking a film wherein one of the protagonists is a musician who sings two original songs. You are turning this into a musical, and you (laughs) take out the element where she's a musician. Instead of that, what they have is this. This high school has this competition once a year that they call The Hunt. When she originally asks her mother at the beginning of the movie if she can do this hunt, her mother says, no, I know that. That's where every year all of these students get together and take selfies of themselves doing extremely dangerous things. I'm not going to let you do that. Now, when I heard that, I thought, okay, this could be interesting. So it's like a competition to see who can take the most dangerous selfies, maybe. It sounds like something that high school students might actually do. Like, you know, it's like take a picture of yourself dangling off a roof or something and whoever is the most extreme wins or something like that. It's not that. (laughs) It is a scavenger hunt. And they say, okay, here's how we're going to find the missing magical hourglass. We're going to put it on the list of things that people have to find in the hunt. It's the only way we can possibly go through 33 antique stores in in this amount of time. Keep in mind, they forgot they can call them. Climax of the movie is they go and they participate in this hunt. There is a song where the, the, uh, the hunt master explains to them the rules of the hunt. When I saw this part of the movie, I felt like I was having a stroke. I am going to read some of these lyrics to you. And you explain to me how the hell this makes any sense. This is a song <laughs> in the musical where the Huntmaster uh, is explaining to them what they have to do to win the hunt. Here are the rules of the game. Go where you never thought you'd go. <laughs> go way too far. Where the things you have to find will be found. Go there. Go there. <laughs> and be where you are be where you are (laughs) there's a little bit more here it's not the finding but the searching what you find you'll never see not the being but becoming once you are you'll never be not the winning but the wishing wishes end when you have won not the ending but beginning And we've only just begun. Like, these are rules for the game. He's explaining the rules. How are you going to play this game? Like, that's the rules. Go find what you're finding. But you have to follow all of these rules at the same time. Now, here's what you have to imagine. A bunch of teenagers, like, lined up in the street, and a dude just, like, on top of a car. Yelling this out. I'm still imagining this all taking place in their kitchen. <laughs> That's what I'm saying for this whole thing. How are we going to rank this? <laughs> well, I was wondering, because you guys watched, well, Sean, well, she, Sean covered three of these films, yeah. right? So do we do we count this as a triple episode here? We have to catch we up, not- man. We, we're like 26 movies down this week, so we have to catch up. We're doing all yeah, three. So we can, knock, we can knock three off the list of uh, our Disney Plus watching list. We absolutely can. We're counting all three. Nice. How well, are we thanks for taking them? one for the team there, buddy. I appreciate it. All right, I'm going to start. I'm putting this at the bottom. It is worse than Bullock <laughs> Griffin. All right? Freaky Friday 2018 is at the bottom. Freaky Friday uh, 2003, I, I think I would honestly put that at, like, number two. I would put that below <laughs> Darby O'Gill. But I think it was a lot of fun. I think uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan were delightful and funny. Uh, I enjoyed the movie. I would put that above... Um, uh, a Blackbeard's Ghost and uh, Black Hole and 
and and uh, Bullwhip Griffin. So I would put that at number two. I would put Lindsay Lohan's 1976 version. I would put that – honestly, I feel like below Black Hole. I feel like if I was recommending to people, there's more of value in Black Hole. As bad as Elements of Black Hole is, it's there's still more good stuff in there. I feel like the 1976 version is mostly it's it's very dull. The climax is has is fun, but it's hard to get there. Like it's an hour ten minutes of nothing, in my opinion. I really dug uh, Barbara Harris in this again. Her performance was just so much fun. Uh, I would put this one, I was going to say above Blackbeard's Ghost is number two, but I'm going to put it as three. Uh, so it's Darby first, Blackbeard's Ghost, and then uh, this one. And because, uh, I mean, we're, we're knocking the other ones off the list, I'm going to put uh, Freaky Friday uh, 2003 um, above the black hole, and I will put it, I'll put 2018 above Bullet Griffin. You're wrong. You are you are one hundred percent wrong. <laughs> I I will fight you on that. You're you're allowed to feel however you feel about 1976, but 2018 is is oh my god. I have seen things <laughs> that you can only imagine. <laughs> um. So in 1976, when this movie came out, Disney released a few other movies. They started out on a low note. They released a movie called No Deposit, No Return. But a bunch of kids who fake their own ransom in order to get money from their parents, I think. I'm sold, but apparently didn't do well. Didn't get good reviews. There's another movie called Treasure of Matacumba about finding buried treasure. They actually shot it at Disneyland on that uh, pirate island in Disneyland. Later in the year, though, things kind of picked up for them. In the fall, they released Gus, which is their talking horse movie. Uh, quite successful, made $21.8 million. And then in December of 1976, released on the same day, they released The Shaggy DA and Freaky Friday, both of which were huge fucking smashes. They came out on the same day. Why? Well, Freaky Friday- So I guess then was this one their, their adult film? So like, was this counter-programming? To be fair, to clarify, I guess, Freaky Friday was a limited release. So they did, like, a platforming release for Freaky Friday, I guess. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, 1976 Freaky Friday got very mixed reviews. Both Siskel and Ebert gave it two and a half out of four stars. Both said, this is a dumb, dumb script, but, you know, performances are kind of fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. That's, that's the, that is the, the review. But like Bobby said, it made tons of money. So I, I do have a question why they didn't make the sequels. Like, honestly, the film sets up MCU, like, teaser credit style, <laughs> a sequel where the son and the father switch places. The MCU. Uh, and they had a book. The book was written. Why, why did they never make Freaky Friday 2, Summer Switch? I don't understand it. Because uh, they also had John Austin cast. He's perfect. I want to see John Austin playing a seven-year-old kid. Yeah. Like, honestly, the fact that we lost that opportunity is heartbreaking to me. Yeah. All right, so what are we going to do next week? Bobby's vote is for the Even Stevens movie, apparently. <laughs> Should we do the Even Stevens movie? <laughs> All right, so yes. we're going to do the Even Stevens movie. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And that's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar. That's at P O D W O R E. 
And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks.